0: that I don't have an English accent. Uh, but I was listened, A friend of mine told me before we went, if you come back with an English accent, you can make an extra $5,000 a year. <laughs> and I, I've been working on it, but it just, you know, you can take a man out of Kentucky, but you can't take the Kentucky out of the man. And um, I, I'm sorry about that. I just want to say I've enjoyed the service. That choir... I never heard anything. I'll tell you, it wasn't listening. It was looking at them. I've never, ever seen a choir where every single person had a smile on their faces. They were worshiping. And that that leader, I thought he was going to go to heaven two or three times. what I want to do tonight is to talk to you about Joseph when he revealed himself to his brothers. Would you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45? And we're going to look at this passage together. And this is an example of one who waited for a day to come. And we're told in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. This was a moment that Joseph had been looking forward to for many, many years. He always knew the day would come, but those men before him had no idea who this was. They had to come to Egypt in order to buy corn because of the famine in the world. And 22 years before, They betrayed their brother Joseph, sold him into slavery, which uh, they thought would be the end of having to see him ever again. But before that happened, Joseph had dreams. And the sad thing is that he told the dreams to his brothers. He said to them one day, he said, We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said, Do you think you're going to reign over us? And then he said, I've had, I've had another dream. Listen, this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Well, you didn't have to be Sigmund Freud to, to interpret that dream. They got the message, and even his father was upset. Now, what we have here is a case of... A gift in perfect working order. There was nothing wrong with Joseph's gift, but there was a lot wrong with Joseph. And he wasn't ready to be used. He is an example of tomorrow's man. But he had to wait for his time to come. It wasn't right for him to say this to his brothers. And it made them so angry, first they were going to kill him. In fact... That is what they were going to do. And then they saw the Ishmaelites coming, and they came up with plan B. They would sell him to the Ishmaelites, but never again would they have to see him. They just took a coat of many colors that Jacob had made for Joseph, dipped that coat in blood, and then took it and laid it before their father Jacob and said, We found this coat to Could this possibly be your son's coat? And Jacob said, oh yes, it is Joseph's own coat. A wild beast has devoured him. I will go to my grave in mourning. And those brothers had a sigh of relief. The plan worked. Jacob would never know. They would never have to see their brother again. And Joseph was now sold to the Ishmaelites. Twenty-two years later, he is now prime minister of Egypt, and these brothers are having to come to him and beg for food. They know who he is. They don't know who he is. He knows who they are. They haven't a clue who he is. He's now in Egyptian garb. He's speaking through an interpreter. But the thing is, he had waited For this day he looked forward to the day when he could see those brothers before him and those dreams fulfilled and say gotcha he looked forward to the day when he could throw the book at them and make them squirm because what they did to him wasn't very nice and he had been filled with bitterness now why is this story important Well, for one thing, it shows how, if God gives a prophetic word, it can be delayed in its being fulfilled. And it could be some prophetic word has been given to you and you're waiting for that day to be fulfilled. Maybe there is something that needs to take place before all that you look forward to could happen. Or perhaps you have a gift and there's nothing wrong with your gift and you think god why aren't you using me you know joseph's gift really had to do with dreams and and that was the end of it at the time can you imagine joseph going to an employment agency and they say well joseph tell us uh, uh, what is it that you are good at and he said dreams They would say, okay, well now let me take your name down, Joseph, I'll write this down here, we'll be in touch with you, thank you very much. And perhaps your gift would seem as insignificant as that. And yet there came a time when the Pharaoh had a dream, and nobody could interpret it. What had happened in the meantime was this. Joseph worked for Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. We're told that God was with him. And then Joseph was given a very crucial test. Joseph's example is one that should make all of us think twice whenever we're faced with sexual temptation. It is only a matter of time when every sovereign vessel will face sexual temptation. Billy Graham said to a friend of mine recently, It seems as though the devil gets 75% of God's best men and women through sexual temptation. Well, Potiphar's wife began to flirt with Joseph and said, Go to bed with me. And he kept resisting her. Now, it would have been the perfect affair because he was in Egypt where nobody knew him, Back in Canaan, they would never find out. Potiphar isn't going to tell her husband. Potiphar's wife isn't going to tell her husband. And yet, he resisted for one reason. He said, God knows. How can I do this thing and sin against God? A lot of people I know resist sexual temptation for one reason. They're afraid they will get caught. But here was a chance for them to do this. And there was no human way that would ever be caught. But the reason he resisted is because he says, God would know. How could I do this thing and sin against God? Well, Victor Hugo said, Hell hath no fury like that of a woman scorned. And The next thing you know, she accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. Potiphar puts him in prison. And the thanks he got for doing the right thing is that he's in prison. Do you know what it is to suffer for doing good? Do you know what it is like when you take your stand for God and you think the angels are going to clap their hands and they're going to congratulate you, and instead everything goes wrong, and because he did the right thing, he was in prison. Well, it was while there... He had some company, the butler, uh, the cupbearer, and the baker. And they had dreams. And Joseph said, oh, at last, my time has come. Tell me your dreams. And he prophesied uh, to the butler, to the cupbearer, in three days you will have your job back. He said to the baker, I don't have the same good news for you, I'm afraid. Uh, But he got it right both times. The baker was hanged in three days. The butler got his job back. But then Joseph went over the top. Just at the time when all heaven was saying, very good. Here he had resisted sexual temptation. Now his gift is at work. And he says, you will have your job back with Pharaoh. And then Joseph says, oh, one more thing. When you go back, remember me to the Pharaoh. Joseph. Joseph. J-O-S-E-P-H. Don't forget me. And God in heaven looked down and said, Oh, Joseph, I wish you hadn't said that. You're going to need a couple of more years. (laughs) Joseph felt nothing as far as the presence of God is concerned when he resisted part of his wife. And now, when he gets his chance to get out, he feels depressed. But it was in those two years that he began to forgive. And what happens when we see Joseph before his brothers, all because the Pharaoh had the dream that nobody could interpret, and the butler then remembered Joseph. He would have remembered him anyway. He would not have had uh, Joseph to put him up to that. He would have known that only one person could interpret the dream. And when nobody could do it, they send for Joseph. He prophesies that there will be seven years of lean, of, of plenty, and then that will be followed by seven years of famine. And he told the Pharaoh exactly what to do. It would make Pharaoh rich, and all the world would come begging. And instantly, the Pharaoh makes Joseph prime minister of Egypt. He waits for the day when those brothers would come and the dream would be fulfilled. And he looked forward to that moment. I wonder if you know what it is like to be mistreated, to suffer because you did the right thing, to be lied about, to be deeply hurt. And you long to get vengeance. You want to make them squirm. And Joseph fantasized about the day. He could say, gotcha. But lo and behold, it's a different Joseph. It's a new Joseph. Instead of throwing the book at them, instead of punishing them, and he was in a position to do it. He could have done anything. He was second only to the Pharaoh. He totally... Forgives his brothers. Now, why do you suppose I'm bringing this message tonight? Well, the reason is this. Some years ago, when I was pastor of that little church in Palmer, Tennessee, one Monday morning, driving in my car to go back to Trevecca Nazarene College, where I was a student, the glory of the Lord filled the car. The person of Jesus was more real to me than anybody in this room. I entered into a peace, a rest, that exceeded anything that I even thought was possible in this life. And The person of Jesus, so real, the peace, so wonderful. In 24 hours, it changed my theology. You know, it's interesting. Stan, you're talking about the way you've come into the knowledge of grace. I knew within hours that I was eternally saved. I remember going back to Trevek and I said to my friends, uh, I am eternally saved. They said, what do you mean by that? I said, just what I mean. I I will go to heaven when I die, no matter what happens between now and then. And they said, you're going off into Calvinism. I said, well, what's that? Well, they said, uh, we don't believe that. I said, well, then maybe we are wrong." But the thing is, I thought I discovered something new. I thought I was the first since the Apostle Paul to see this. But it was this experience, when I was baptized with the Spirit, that changed my theology. You see, it's interesting that you talk about coming from different directions. What is needed more than anything else is that the Word and the Spirit come together. Uh, Some years ago, I don't know when, but in the past at some stage there was a silent divorce in the church between the Word and the Spirit. Now, you have what you call Word churches. You have what you call Spirit churches. Uh, I know what it is to be on the Word side. Uh, Westminster Chapel is a Word church. What is our emphasis? The centrality of preaching. Getting back to the doctrines of Luther, Calvin that turned the world upside down in the 16th century. We need to teach justification by faith. We need to get back to the faith once delivered under the saints. That is the need of the hour. What is wrong with that emphasis? Absolutely nothing. But then on the other hand, you've got spirit churches. What are they saying? Well, what we need is the baptism of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit signs, wonders, miracles, the world is not going to be shaken until we see God working like he did in the book of Acts. What is wrong with that emphasis? Absolutely nothing. You see, you have these two emphases at the present time, and both claiming this is the way forward, this is what is needed at the present time. You know, when there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the mother, sometimes the children stay with the father. And so, in this silent divorce, you've got those who are in the Word churches, and they're repeating the message. Those in the Spirit churches, they're repeating the message. What is needed more than anything else as I speak is not one or the other, but both. When these two come together, when the Word and the Spirit come together, this simultaneous combination would result in spontaneous combustion. And then the world would see what it was like in the book of Acts, when, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the message, the gospel, expository preaching, central, yet it was with power and demonstration. This is what is needed. But there is more. That experience that I just described, which... The person of Jesus was so real to me. The peace. Incredible. After seven, eight, maybe nine months, it began to diminish. And after a year or two, it was a memory. Sweet memory. But that was about it. And over the years, I looked for every way under the sun to get that back I would go forward at any service rededicate my life if I found a godly preacher I'd have him lay hands on me that did me no harm going forward did me no harm I began double tithing that did me no harm I think maybe it wouldn't hurt for some of you to do that either (laughs) I knew Ron would like that I began to get up and pray two hours every day. That did me no harm. I read my Bible more. That was right and good. The old feeling never returned. And then I find myself in my present pulpit, having been deeply hurt, in which I became bitter and angry and hurt. An old friend of mine came through London. His name is Joseph Zoon. Because he was from Romania, I thought I could tell him everything. The only reason I told Joseph was for him to put his arm around me and pat me on the back and say, Artie, you ought to be angry. Get it out of your system. That's all I wanted. Instead, he said, is there anything more I said, Doug, "That's it." Then he looked at me and said, in his Romanian accent, "At, you must totally forgive them. For until you totally forgive them, you will be in chains. Release them, and you will be released." nobody had ever talked to me like that in my life. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And then I said, Joseph, you know, I didn't tell you everything. There's more. Let me tell you this. He said, R.T., you must totally forgive them. For until you totally forgive them, you will be in bondage. Release them and you will be released. I said, Joseph, I can't. He said, you can, and you must. As I look at you, I can tell you, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. But what do you suppose happened? When I began to forgive, that old peace began to come back. Now, all the things I had tried to do, going forward, having people lay hands on me, tithing, praying more. Those were all good things to do. But it wasn't until I totally forgave those who hurt me that I began to remember what that old peace was like and Jesus began to be real to me. And that is why I am bringing this message. I have a feeling that there's somebody here. Your problem is understandable. If we heard what you've been through, we would all understand. You know, we've all got a story to tell. It could be that parent that molested you as a child. It could be that school teacher that hurt you and set you back. It could be that boss that wouldn't give you the rise or... Hired somebody else instead. It could be somebody that lied about you and people believe the lie and you're helpless. We could go on and on. It could be your husband or wife has been unfaithful. Must one totally forgive? The answer is yes. And there is if I may put it this way, at your fingertips, or better still, closer than the air you breathe, the next step forward to blessing, release, power, anointing, like you have not ever experienced. Now the question is, how do I know that I've totally forgiven? And it just happens that in this account of Joseph, when he makes himself known to his brothers, we have the proof of total forgiveness. Here he was, a changed man. And do you know why he had to wait? An example of tomorrow's man having to wait. An example of one whose gift was perfectly in order, but there was something wrong with him. He had to wait. It wasn't until he totally forgave his brothers that he could be trusted with such lofty power. And there are a lot of ambitious people in the church today scrambling for power, pulling strings, say, recommend me for this or get me this, when God is saying, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. God wants to do for you that which defies a natural explanation. When only he could have done it. And when Joseph was devoid of bitterness, God says, that's better. And now, here is a changed Joseph. How do we know that he's totally forgiven them? How can you know that you have totally forgiven those who've hurt you? Proof number one, you do not let anybody know what they did to you. Look at it. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Why did he want everybody out? The reason he wanted everybody out is because he wants to persuade those brothers to come and live in Egypt. He doesn't want anybody in Egypt to know what they did to him. And so, as he's getting ready to reveal himself, he says, everybody, out! And the interpreter stands next to him, and he says, out! And the interpreter says, you want me to go? And then suddenly, Joseph begins to speak to his brothers in Hebrew. And they are stunned. But why did he have them all out? He wanted everybody in Egypt to admire those brothers of his. He wanted them to be heroes in Egypt. And so when you have totally forgiven, you will not tell what you know. Why is it that we want to tell? The reason we want to tell is so that people will have the right perspective. And it's our way of getting even. Here's something I think you should know about that person. Now, how would you feel if God did that to you? Suppose, uh, flashed upon the screen we were looking at earlier... Suppose we had Ron's sins up there. Now that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> and we look up and think, Well, what about that? And Ron would say, Well, yeah, that's true, but I I thought I was forgiven. I thought I was forgiven. You don't need to worry. Do you know? If my sins were put up on that screen, God knows enough about me to bury me. But you will never know. As far as the East is from the West, so far are our transgressions removed from us. And so, said Paul, let all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, every form of malice be put away from you. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. God will not reveal what he knows about you. Why? You've been totally forgiven. But when you tell what they did, you haven't forgiven them. Proof number one, you do not let anybody know what they did. Proof number two, you don't... Want them to be afraid of you. Look at it. We told in verse 2, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard about him and the Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph. Is my father still living But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. I'm your brother chosen. Why did he say that? He didn't want them to be afraid. He didn't want them to be afraid. And that's the way God is with us. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And he wants us to crawl up on his lap and know his love. He does not want us to be in terror. And yet, if somebody has hurt you, you want them to be just a little intimidated. So you walk in the room and you see they freeze when you walk into the room and you think, good, good. That's what I want them to feel. You haven't forgiven them. Proof number two, you don't want them to be afraid of you. Proof number three, you want them to forgive themselves and not be angry with themselves. So he says to them in verse five, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Now, why did he say that? Well, he already knew how they felt. He had eavesdropped conversations before. These men were ridden with guilt. He could have said, good. That serves you right. But he says to them, don't be angry with yourselves. Have you ever said to somebody, I forgive you for what you did, but I hope you feel bad about it. You see, when you have totally forgiven them, you will not send them on a guilt trip. I sometimes think that guilt is the most painful feeling in the world. And you know how you can make a person feel bad. You know how you can say something just that will trigger off a deep emotion. And you send them on a guilt trip. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 Love keeps no record of wrongs. Or he says, I will remember that. And he does. And he gets out the record. Why do we do it? To punish. To punish. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. As long as you're trying to punish... You're elbowing yourself in on God's territory. He says, don't you do that. That's my job. And when we try to play God and make people feel guilty, God just takes his hands off us. We're the ones that suffer. The thing that I had to learn those years before is I was the impoverished one. We sometimes think If we don't forgive them, there's a chance that they'll get caught. And one day we're going to spill the beans on them. It is I who suffer when I don't forgive. Proof number three, you don't want them to be angry with themselves. Proof number four, you let them save face. Now look at this. Verse six. For two years now, there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Can you imagine the reaction of these men? I mean, they're already burdened down with such guilt. And now they're suddenly told, You didn't do it, God did it. Reuben nudges Judah and says, Did we hear him right? We didn't do it, God did it. Joseph says, Mm hmm. Oh, this, this is almost too good to be true. They, they, they can't take it in. They can't take it in. But you see, that's the gospel. The gospel always seems too good to be true. All because Jesus paid my debt on the cross. The blood that he shed satisfied the divine justice. Therefore, I will not come under condemnation. And because of the blood Jesus shed, I'm going to go to heaven. It's not because of anything I've done, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is summarized, In two words, Jesus died. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's too good to be true. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Too good to be true. And these men are being told after 22 years of being burdened with such guilt, you didn't do it, God did it. He lets them save face. And yet he was telling the truth. You know, when you let a person save face, you win a friend forever. I don't know if you've ever read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, It's not really a Christian book, but I think every Christian should read it. I think I know one or two Christians who haven't read it. What does it mean to let another person save face? Well, it's an oriental expression. You let them keep their dignity, their self-esteem, and don't let them feel ashamed of anything. And you say, we're all orientals. And so Joseph said, look, you didn't do it, God did it. He said, it's as simple as this. It was predestined that we live in Egypt. Don't you remember God told Abraham we're going to be in Egypt? And somebody had to go first. And God says, Joseph, you go first. It's Joseph's way of saying, listen to this. Had I been where you were, I would have done what you did. I'm no better. You see, the reason we can't forgive is because we're self-righteous. And we'd say, well, you don't know what they did. I'm going to tell you something. What they did... Maybe you haven't done, but you've done something else that in the eyes of God is just as bad as what they did. And Joseph knew he would have done what they did. The person who is full of love is the one who has overcome this need always to point the finger. Self-righteousness makes God sick. And that's why we don't forgive. Well, this is all very good. And here he says to them, for two years, there's been famine in the land. For the next five years, they will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. So it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. And then, after the euphoria begins to settle down, they think of something else. And this often happens. As soon as we reach the mountaintop, we come down and we think, oh, I forgot about this. And we lose it all again. And, and now they're going to say, well, that's very good that you've forgiven us. But now the most terrible, awful thought has seized them. And what do you suppose that was? What was their greatest fear? Their fear was that their father, Jacob, would find out what they did. They'd rather die than for him to find out. Joseph knew that. And this was already in the computer, and you can see it's a carefully written speech. He tells them what to do. He tells them exactly what to say and he tells them what not to say, do you know, he will not let them tell what is true. You say, well, I think the truth should be out. Well, how would you like for everything that is knowable about you to be out? And Joseph knows that what he has done for them isn't going to be worth anything if they've got to go back and tell Jacob what they did. And so he says to them, he says, This is what your son Joseph says. Go tell my father. God has made him Lord of all Egypt. He wants us to come down. Don't delay. We'll live in the region of Goshen and be near him. Our children, grandchildren. And Joseph says, Your flocks and herds, all you have, I will provide for you there. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. And he says, tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and bring down my father here quickly. He won't let them tell. He won't let them tell. And you perhaps have the goods on somebody. And you say, ah, I could tell any time, you know. And you keep them immobile. Immobile. You keep them paralyzed with fear. You know, we've all got skeletons in the closet. And you may be able to ruin somebody's life and you just hold it over them constantly. It gives you a feeling of power. It's your way of punishing. makes God very angry. When you have totally forgiven them, you will protect them from their deepest fear, their darkest secret. That's the way God forgives us. He has enough on all of us to expose us. Somerset Mom once put it like this, there isn't a person alive who wouldn't die of embarrassment if everything that was knowable was revealed. But God has forgiven us. And maybe you Are that close, that close to telling somebody. And you wonder why there's no victory. You wonder why your time hasn't come. You wonder why blessing is delayed. Well, I'm going to tell you, you're that close tonight to having blessing come to you. If on this occasion you will say, Enough is enough, I release them, I release them, I release them. And you take this seriously. You'll never be the same again. Proof number five, you protect them from their deepest fear. Proof number six, you'll be glad to know it's not much longer. You do it the rest of your life. In Genesis chapter 50, we have the account when Jacob died. And now the brothers concoct a story and they now are besieged with panic and they're so sure that now that Jacob has died, they say, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and makes us pay back for all the the wrongs we did to him? And so they make up this story. Genesis 50 verse 16 says, our father told us to tell you, please forgive us for what we did. And Joseph looks at them and says, What on earth is the matter with you men? I told you 17 years ago, I forgave you. I forgave you then, I forgave you now. Yes, you did intend to harm me, but God meant it for good. So then don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 17 years later, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. What's the point? Total forgiveness is a life sentence. It won't do to say, well, I forgive you today, but that's today. Or next week, you go right back to your old behavior. You start pointing the finger and the other says, well, I thought you forgave me. You say, well, that was last week. This is today. Let me tell you what happened to me those years ago. I began to Ponder after I'd forgiven them and had this wonderful peace, I got to thinking about it. Nobody's ever going to know what they did. And I'd get upset. And the peace would go. And then I think, I'll forgive them. And then the peace would come back. And then, a week or two later, I think, but, you know, they're off the hook. They're off the hook. No one will know. And the, And now I get all upset again. And I begin to realize I had to make a choice. Which do I want? The peace? The anointing? The joy? Or sing and punished? And I began to feel so ashamed. It's a life sentence. You do it every single day. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the devil will remind you again what they did. And you think, they're not going to get caught. They're off the hook. This is not right. And God says, be careful. And you know? Once we hold that grudge, we cut off the supply of the Spirit. I don't care whether it's some deacon That has hurt you, whether a pastor or church leader betrayed you or your wife. Do you know, a few years ago, since I've been minister at Westminster Chapel, one Saturday morning, my wife and I had an argument. I mean, it was quite an argument. I mean, she was terrible. She was horrible. I slammed the door, went upstairs, and it was one of those weeks, kind of like this one, where I was out preaching around and I didn't get my preparation ready. And it was Saturday, and I, I just had that day. And I went upstairs and I sat down. Lord, help me get something to preach tomorrow. Jesus, help me. Lord, Jesus, help me. What's the matter with that woman? Would you deal with her? Jesus, Now, that was 9 o'clock in the morning. Now it's 11 o'clock, and and I'm getting nothing. I'm getting nothing. 1 o'clock. I'm beginning to get a little nervous. 2 o'clock. I said, Lord, you put me in this church where everything I say is recorded, and who knows who's going to listen to this. You've got to help me. And God says, really? (laughs) 3 o'clock. I'm in trouble. And there's one thought that I really thought about it all day. And I didn't want to have to do it, but by four o'clock I went downstairs and I went to Louise and I said, I'm sorry. It's my fault. It was me. No, it wasn't you. It was me. I said, no, it was me. It was me. And we hugged each other and it was a sweet moment. I went back to the same chair, same Bible and in 45 minutes. I had everything I needed. What made the difference? the ungrieved spirit began to flow. I happen to believe in the laying on of hands, and I happen to believe in having people pray for you. But I'm going to tell you, if you are bitter before you fall on the floor, you'll probably be bitter when you come up. Unless God does the powerful surgical work. One caution before I close. Don't go to them and say, I forgive you. That's the worst thing you can do. You know why? They're going to say, for what? He'll say, well, you know. They'll say... No, I'm sorry. I, for what? Oh, come on now. You know what you did. I'm sorry. I don't know. And now you've got a bigger trouble than you've ever had. A greater fight on your hands than ever. And, you know, I quote Jeremiah seventeen nine again. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked who can know it. When we say, I forgive you for what you've done, that's one last-ditch effort to throw a stone or stick the knife in. Let me tell you, never go to them. The only time... You say, I forgive you, is when they want you to. And they want to be set free. They'll, they'll love those words. But you will know when it's right to do that. The people I had to forgive, do you know something? I never said a word. It happened here. It happened here. And what is more, we became friends. We never talked about it. They may have known. It doesn't matter. God knew. God knew. I believe for somebody in this place, this is the next step forward for the anointing.